Welcome once again to Wisdom of the Elders, the podcast. I'm Ron Alesco, and I'm here today with Sunny Oaks. Sunny started this series at Nerfa back in 2010, where she invites three uh, esteemed members of our folk community to talk about their lives, their music, and uh, impart some wisdom. And uh, we, we've been rebroadcasting some of the original shows, and we have a new one, like which, which, which we have for you today. Sonny, uh, I'll let you take it over from here. Who, you've got three great guests for us today. These are three of the greatest because all, all three of them are recipients of the Phil Oaks Award, which we give annually. And the Phil Oaks Award goes to somebody who doesn't just talk the talk, but also walks the walk. These are three really involved individuals who have gone out of their way to help other people. And our three individuals are Charlie King, who was one of the founding members of People's Music Network. It's over 40 years ago, and it's still going, which is amazing. I hope we'll talk about that. And then we have uh, John Flynn who in my mind is just one of the greatest people on the earth. He has been working with prisoners for many, many, many years and helping them out in, in a prison in, in, I believe, in Delaware. And what he does is he not, not only did he started a group within the prison, but then he got a call from somebody who had been released and was terrified and wanted to meet with him for coffee. So he's, he's agreed to meet with this guy, and that has now turned into another group on the outside. I mean, and he finds work for them. He does so much with them, and he's, he's got a 501c3 going now, but he'll tell you about that. And just a wonderful person. And then there's John McCutcheon. Thinking of other people, he's one of the founders of Local 1000, which is a union for traveling musicians. I mean, all these years, they've never had any kind of benefits, and John and some others got together, and I hope we'll do some discussion about that. Okay, let's get it going. I can't wait to hear these great people. Oh, thanks, Sonny. And we're going to start with Charlie King. Um, Charlie has written some songs that have been recorded by artists from Pete Seeger, Holly Near, Ronnie Gilbert, Arlo Guthrie, Chad Mitchell, and John McCutcheon, as well as many, many others. And uh, as Sonny mentioned, he was one of the co-founders of the People's Song Network. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But but Charlie, I, I, I want to go back to the beginning. Um, you were born in, in, in Brockton, Massachusetts, from what I understand. And if I do the math correctly, you sort of came of age during the civil rights movement and the folk revival, Vietnam War. I, I'm assuming that that helped shape the career that you've taken on as both a songwriter and an activist. Well, the short answer is yes. A uh, little bit more detail. I was pretty thoroughly uh, firewalled from the civil rights movement. I grew up in a pretty conservative household and uh, um, that was all considered uh, pretty suspicious activity. Um, and it uh, wasn't until I got away from home that, I, uh, well, I should say, not until I started listening to people like Pete Seeger, uh, began to open my eyes and my ears. And then when I got away from home uh, and became uh, affected by the Vietnam War and the draft, then things started to change for me. Um, but certainly, uh, what we're calling the folk revival. I'm assuming you're referring to the late 50s, early 60s. Um, that was an enormous impact on me. Uh, I used to haunt the uh, music clubs 
in Boston and Cambridge in uh, the early 1960s and saw a lot of wonderful artists in there. And uh, one of them was Michael Cooney. Uh -huh. And Michael very uh, uh, forcefully told his audience uh, in, the, in the midst of this rise of singer-songwriters, don't try to write any more songs. All the good songs have been written and your job is to learn them. And I took that advice pretty seriously uh, and uh, tried to learn as many songs as I could and sing them. Um, and uh, um, that's really the only training I've had as a songwriter and as a singer is just sort of um, listening to those songs and echoing them back. Um, yeah. And uh, it wasn't until I uh, moved to New York City uh, in the early 70s and um, went to an open mic or a, actually threw my hat into the ring for an open mic and they told me, yeah, show up next Wednesday and sing three songs that you wrote yourself. And uh, <laughs> so that's how I wrote my first three songs and uh, don't ask me to sing them. Um, and uh, once I did, started writing songs, they started coming pretty easily and I, I wrote quite um, a lot uh, in the uh, 70s and 80s and on into the 90s. Uh, I asked Leon Rosselson about a particular English songwriter. I said, he, he, he writes an awful lot of songs. And Leon said, yeah, a few too many, I think. <laughs> and uh, uh, I've gotten out of that for sure. I haven't written a few too many songs in a long time. Well, you're still writing quality songs. I, I, I've heard your last few albums, and, and you're, you, you haven't lost a step. You're, you're still uh, singing about issues that are so important to us and using a lot of humor in, in your music as well. I remember the first time I saw you was at a little folk festival here in New Jersey. Uh, you were performing with the group Bright Morning Star. Um, I guess that was sort of early on in your career as well, that, that you were with the group? Yeah, when I um, made my second album, which would have been, mm, I guess, the late 70s, um, I invited a bunch of musicians to work on it. It was We did it in live performance, and uh, we enjoyed working together, and we formed this troupe, Bright Morning Star, and started touring. And we toured for, uh, I guess, about a dozen years until the money ran out. <laughs> that's, that's often the case with uh, folk music, isn't it? Uh, well, yeah, we used to get to the end of a tour and uh, put a hat on the table, and everyone tossed a twenty-dollar bill in there and hope we covered expenses. <laughs> well, uh, you you still created some uh, incredible songs. I mean, one of the songs that I I remember hearing early on was um, Two Good Arms," the song about Sacco and Vanzetti. And I understand your 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 hometown uh, had a connection, but. From what I've heard, you weren't really aware of it until much later on. Yeah. No, it wasn't until uh, the 50th anniversary of their death that I started um, researching that and was surprised to hear that they were jailed in Brockton and they were forced to act out the crime they were being accused of. And they had witnesses come in and watch them act out those crimes. And uh, uh, they were uh, the police would come in and make certain adjustments to, you know, the hat they were wearing or the way they poised holding a gun and things like that. And then later those witnesses showed up in court and said, yeah, these are the men we saw them commit this crime. And so it was a pretty their their whole story. Nicola Sacco, Vanzetti, Vanzetti, um, Bartolomeo Vanzetti, uh, just a, a, a travesty of justice. But it started uh, in West Bridgewater when they were arrested and uh, pretty quickly came to Brockton. But, you know, not surprisingly, um, 
people didn't talk about it. Uh, I went to Plymouth where Vanzetti lived and to Soso Lane, Swasso's Lane, Woody Guthrie said, um, where uh, Vanzetti lived and, and asked about that, you know, and, and people who lived on that street and whose families went back uh, decades didn't want to talk about Sacco and Vanzetti. And uh, when I pushed them on it, found out some of them had ancestors on the jury. So mm. a little bit like uh, the Jewish community and the Rose uh, Rosenberg trials, you know, people want to keep that kind of history at, uh, at great length, uh, at arm's length. Um, I, I'm kind of fascinated by the desire to suppress history. That's something I've been thinking about about lately. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of other people with more power than I have have been thinking about it too. Well, that's why I'm glad you and, and, and our other guests today have written songs like this. I, I think you've probably helped introduce the story of Sacco and Vanzetti to, to, to many listeners who may not have heard it until they, they first heard your song. Um, and a lot of your songs tell stories of history, tell stories about the struggles, social issues. What brought you into that style of writing music? I mean, obviously, we talked about Vietnam and, and growing up in the 60s, but, you know, you could have gone off in different directions. I mean, you're obviously a talented songwriter, but yet you, you know, a lot of your music has focused on, on these kinds of issues. Well, I think I learned to do what I do by listening to singers in the 1960s. And even though Boston was the least political of the folk scene, still, it, it definitely crept through and um, also through recordings. So, uh, you know, listening to Pete Seeger's uh, Carnegie Hall, what was it, 1963, We Shall Overcome album, you know, mm -hmm. I, I wore that out. Um, and uh, so it never occurred to me that a folk singer wouldn't be reflecting on uh, uh, political and social issues. Mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't know what else to write about, really. Uh, haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> but I did learn pretty quickly um, to look for a narrative uh, to frame a song around rather than writing songs about issues, writing songs about people involved in, in those situations. Yeah. And you've also helped other songwriters. And you were, as Sonny mentioned earlier, you were one of the founders of the People's Music Network, which has been over 40 years now. How did that organization come to be created? Well, I was living uh, at a, uh, a peace uh, camp, <laughs> a conference center, the Community for Nonviolent Action in uh, Voluntown, Connecticut. And uh, we were scheduling summer conferences. And since I was the resident singer, uh, I suggested we do a musical conference. And uh, we put together something called Songs of Freedom and Struggle, 1977, and invited uh, as many people as we knew to come and um, share their music, um, mostly out of a sense of um, seeing the 60s kind of drifting away. Uh, you know, looking back at a time when you could hear Joan Baez and Phil Oaks on, you know, uh, major FM stations. And um, then we felt like we were losing that exposure, losing that influence, and we were losing contact with one another as a result of it. So it was a, a, an effort at uh, creating a network, creating a community, learning from one another. Um, we pulled together about 70 musicians the first year, and uh, over the years, it kind of ran. We would have regular gatherings and ran between, I don't know, 70 and a couple of hundred people. 
And uh, um, many of the people who came to that first uh, gathering, I shouldn't say many, but I, I can name a few people who came to that first gathering who are still making music today and still coming to those gatherings. So, um, And there's usually, what, two gatherings or so each year? And I know they're, they're very active on social media. Originally, it yeah. was once each summer, and then Pete came to one and suggested that uh, having summer um, encampments out in the woods was not a good way to build a diverse network. And so the next year we began having winter weekends uh, in urban settings and that changed the nature. And that's when Songs of Freedom and Struggle moved to become the People's Music Network uh, as a result of trying to build that diversity and an alliance there. Well, it's still an amazing organization and you're still involved with it too, right? I am, yeah, yeah. Although... Uh, <laughs> This is, I think, my post-retirement program, uh, learning to say no. And uh, so I'm just now stepping down off of the steering committee for People's Music Network. Uh, but I I'll remain, you know, uh, active in it and, uh, uh, and get a lot out of it. So, yes. And I assume because you're, you're stepping away from the steering committee, that you feel that it's in good hands, that, that this is a, an organization that's going to be sustainable and new people coming in and getting involved? Absolutely. Um, and, um, you know, it was important, I think, for me to get out of the way because it was going in new directions. And uh, the people that are steering the helm now are the ones who who's, who's set those new directions. And I think they do it a lot better than I ever would. And I'm glad they're willing to do it. Mm -hmm. well, we're glad you're still performing. You may be semi-retired, but I know you keep yourself quite busy. Uh, I've seen you doing some touring. You're now touring with Ann Patterson, who uh, was one of the founders of the, um, oh, I just drew a blank. Rise Up Singing? Rise Up Singing, that's right. Uh, yeah. And uh, your your former partner, uh, Karen Brando, unfortunately passed away in, in 2014. You recorded a number of, of albums with her, but you, know, you, you seem to always uh, do a lot of work with others. You know, you've, I've seen you as solo performer, but uh, you seem to enjoy performing with other people and sharing a, a different kind of experience. Well, you mentioned Bright Morning Star, and that was probably the first time that I moved away from solo work. And I learned so much from working with those people that uh, I think it just made an impression on me that uh, uh, I could be better if I were working with other musicians. And then along came Karen. Uh, we met at the Great Labor Arts Exchange, and uh, um, we built a relationship uh, both uh, uh, as loving partners and as musical partners. And uh, she's a much better uh, performer, instrumentalist, vocalist than I am. So her presence on stage really lifted up the performances. And I really haven't had any desire to work solo since working with Karen. <clears throat> and Ron, if you want a tour, ask Annie Patterson. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. What a great partner to have. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful sense of humor, incredible musician, wonderful voice, and and an unlimited uh you know uh, uh repertoire of songs, wonderful performer. I've just been blessed to be able to work with people like uh Annie Patterson and uh, uh Lindsay Wilson and uh Elise Bryant and uh, uh Reggie Harris and you know a, a long list of people who've said yes when I asked if they'd like to do one show or a tour so sure. uh very very lucky in my life uh, well, we're lucky that you've, you've chosen some wonderful people to be with you but today uh, I'm wondering if you might be a solo performer and, and share a song with us now yeah, 
Um, yeah, I expected you might ask me to do that. <laughs> um, I mentioned earlier that uh, this whole suppression of uh, our history as a nation, the, uh, the taboo on using the word his systemic in, <laughs> in any context, uh, it really interests me. And I, like I said, I try to find a narrative to build some a song around rather than uh, just talking about the issues. <clears throat> and um, it occurred to me that it's not surprising to want to keep our dark history secret. It feels like something that I grew up with. And uh, so I tried to make the political personal, I guess, and look at it. I, with all of the contention and warring camps in this country, it's always a very personal thing for me because I do come from a, a conservative family. Both my brothers are quite conservative. And so I, you know, when, when things come up, I ask myself, you know, what would Coley do? That's my younger brother. Uh, one of the best people I've, I've got to know in my life, and yet we're diametrically opposed when it comes to politics. So anyhow, this is just a reflection on some of the personal roots for a societal problem. I remember Grandma's face She looked so sad and quiet She left one day without a trace Though all my folks deny it Granddad hated Carry Nation It was rum that killed him They say it skips a generation Better not tell the children Somewhere there's a box of letters Somewhere there's a diary In a drawer beneath mom's sweaters Shielded from inquiry Remember why the old cat died Curiosity killed him Some things are best kept inside Better not tell the children Better not tell the children why bring up the past? Better not tell the children They are growing up too fast Better not tell the children Who oh, I hope they never ask Perhaps someday but till then Better not tell the children Back in 1491 as Europe's merchants hovered, 140 million souls lived happily undiscovered. We brought them guns and germs and steel, and it was all downhill then. One in ten lived to tell the tale. Better not tell the children. Then we learned to line our pockets Thanks to old King Cotton, slavery guaranteed the profits. Some things are best forgotten. Lincoln said he'd free the slaves, skipped a couple million. Jim Crow rose to dig their graves. Better not tell the children, somewhere there's a bill of sale. Somewhere there's a tally Long last lost ledgers, tattletales 
whispers in the alley, laws that sanctioned lynching mobs and disenfranchised millions. If you want to keep your job, you better not tell the children, better not tell the children, it will only bring them shame. Better not tell the children, they might think that they're to blame. Better not tell the children, they might say we need to change. They might think that we're the villains. Better not tell the children, better not tell the children, they might say we need to change. They just might be willing. Better not tell the children. Wow. Powerful song. Thank you, Charlie King. You still have it, Charlie. <laughs> you haven't lost it a bit. I'm having trouble giving it away, Sonny. <laughs> Thanks for asking me first. Now I get to relax and enjoy the show. Okay, well, I know you will enjoy. And next is my really dear friend, John Flynn. John and I met at the Southwest Regional Folk Alliance in September of 2001. And that was, I believe, the first, first uh, Southwest Regional Folk Alliance. And uh, we spent a lot of time talking. We flew back on an airplane. We happened to be on the same plane on September 9th, 2001, two days before the tragedy. And so amazing. And we've been through so much since then. And so, John, I'm going to say hello to you and let you take it from here. First of all, kind of like a, how did you get started? I know you went to Temple University. I know uh, that you had all kinds of good grades and stuff. Talk about yourself for a bit, the beginning stuff. Uh, well, hi, everybody. Hi, Sonny. Um, uh, I started to playing a guitar when my uncle Kevin came home from Okinawa. He was in the Marine Corps and I was about uh, 11 and he left an old gut string at my house and he, and he scribbled out a couple chords on a napkin and uh, I just never looked back. So it just, it, it, I was a quiet kind of shy, shy kid, but with a guitar in my lap, uh, I, I kind of experienced a new way to be in the world. And, uh, and, and so I, I never looked back. Um, I, uh, I was originally supposed to, I was, for a while I was, I was headed to the Naval Academy, uh, but I kind of pulled the brake on that and uh, I, I, I went to college thinking the guidance counselors are right, I'm supposed to be, they told me I was going to be a preacher or a lawyer. And, and instead, I ended up a folk singer. I'm not sure what that, that says, but I got, I got done college, I took my LSATs. Uh, and I was get, getting ready to go to law school and something was nagging me. So I went to Nashville instead and, and uh, I, I couldn't even afford a place to stay. I was staying in a pup tent at Cedars of Lebanon State Park and going in Music Row every day and, and pitching my songs. And uh, about the second week I was there, I got a, a, a contract on a song I wrote called Rainbows and Butterflies which was inspired by a, a Don Williams, I was a big Don Williams fan, um, a tune called I Believe in Love. And um, Billy Swan cut my song and, and, and it, it, 
you know, it went on, it went to 39 on the charts, which, which made me realize you should be very specific in your prayers. Cause I was, I was hoping for a top 40 and, and, it, and it made it to 39. And I thought if I had only aimed higher, you know, I'd have gotten a nicer house out of the deal. Um, uh, toured a little bit on the college market, uh, when country music started to change a whole bunch in, in, in the eighties. Uh, and I felt less and less at home. Uh, I, I was supporting myself as a bar singer, got married, was raising a family, um, making a pretty good living as a, as a cover bar singer. Uh, Gene Shea, uh, signed me to my first uh, record contract on sliced bread records. And, and I got a chance to, to start doing my own songs. Uh, and that's around the time I think I ran into you, Sonny. Um, my, my songs didn't tend to get into, uh, social justice areas until, uh, I moved to Delaware and I met a fella named Kevin O'Connell. He's the chief public defender in Delaware right now, but he was a private attorney back then. And he ran the, uh, uh, Delaware Citizens Against the Death Penalty, uh, a local uh, group of abolitionists. And, and the, the fir within the first five minutes of our meeting, Kevin said, where do you stand on the death penalty? And I said, capital punishment? He said, no, the death penalty. Where do you stand on the death penalty? And I said, I think I, I'm kind of against it, but I've never really given it that much thought. You know, I've never really d done the work, I suppose. So I don't know that I could stand up and defend my intuitive feeling and the next day there was a box on my front porch and it was filled with uh, uh dvds and books sister helen's uh, book uh, dead man walking and and the film was in there and articles and and it was a little note and it said it said john uh do the work you, you owe it to yourself and you owe it to the rest of us and from that kevin and i started mercy which is uh, musicians encouraging the repeal of capital punishment and um, we had our first Mercy concert in not too long after uh, September 11th, 2001. I think it was in October, and Charlie King and Karen were among the first artists to say yes. John, you were there too, as I recall. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was, you know, that was c kind of me coming out uh, as, a, as a social activist. It was the first time I wrote on, on, on something that was, uh, you know, uh, Somebody once said to me that the first thing that improves when you pull your head out of your ass is the view, you know. <laughs> and once once I started to look around, my writing changed uh, uh, quite a bit. Um, anyway, fast forward a little bit. Uh, a, a, a mission, a street mission in Delaware called the Franciscan Center. I met a guy named Brother David there who was. Uh, it's since become one of my dearest uh, friends. And David ran a, uh, a group at the local prison called New Beginnings. And uh, he went every Tuesday morning and kind of just hung out. You know, there was a place where there was no, no camera, no guard, uh, no report to the warden. It was just a, a chance for guys to get together and, and talk. And David described it as a way of getting guys ready for doing a big job. He said, if you're going to build a cabinet you need supplies and tools and plans and if you're going to try and stay free after you leave a place like gander hill prison uh here in north wilmington uh you, you know you're going to need all of those things and so it's, it's a chance for these guys to take stock of you know what they're going to need to do anyway he got transferred a few years after we met and uh he's now the chaplain at the walter reed medical center doing other very important work i should mention new beginnings uh wasn't 
a Catholic or he was a Franciscan, but a, a Catholic. It's not about religion or, you know, it, it, it doesn't try to convince anybody of anything. Anybody is welcome, no matter what their particular faith tradition or, or lack thereof. But anyway, he asked me to take over for him when he left uh, town. And I said no a couple times, thinking I'd be, you know, thinking uh, correctly that I'd be totally inept at this. Um, but uh, David convinced me that, you know, anybody that had a pulse could do this job. And I, I've since proved that to be true. Um, <laughs> I used to go in. I was, I was very earnest, man. I was like a, a, a substitute middle school teacher showing up for, you know, seventh grade. And, and I, I would just tap dance for an hour and a half trying to get guys interested in what I was talking about. And I'd go in with handouts and discussion prompts and books. You know, I was buying books all over the place and trying to figure out what, what answers I could impart, what wisdom I could come up with to help these guys. And finally, one day, uh, it occurred to me that, you know, um, to, to say, fellas, this is your group. You tell me what we need to be talking about. And there was this just this amazing transformation took place, you know, when I gave them ownership of the group. And uh, it, it, it grew so much that we had to start a second weekly group at the prison. And then I got invited to start another group at the work release prison, which was a few miles away. And then a couple of my guys were, were getting out and they said, like, as you alluded, Sonny, can we get together and, and, and because getting together and talking and sharing and, and, and holding each other accountable, not judging each other, but asking tough questions and, you know, uh, and knowing somebody gives a damn in this world, it, it really makes a difference. So. So I started to raise a little money for these meetings so that I could get the guys bus passes and uh, some groceries and stuff and eventually decided we needed to do this officially and, and I started a nonprofit. Started to attract some volunteers. The first guy that ever went into prison with me was a, a, a sociology professor uh, named Tom Gallagher and uh, we came out of prison on a Thursday night and stood by his car and he said, he said, that was so extraordinary. I've never seen that before. And I said, what? He said, I've never seen men listen to each other. He said, I've seen men be quiet because that's what they do when they're thinking of what they're going to say when it's their turn to talk. But he said, these guys actually lean in and, and you know, um, I had never even heard of the phrase active listening back then, but he said, it's mutually dignifying and, and that's so powerful in a place that strips you of your dignity. Uh, and that, that, that's when I realized what it was we were actually doing you know that's that was where the the real work was taking place and and i i, I really feel strongly that 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 change doesn't really happen because of you know, enlightened policies or, or or ideas or intentions it happens because of relationships and so we're we're about building that that sense of trust and and that relationship it's interesting because uh, some years ago my agent uh, asked me to teach a songwriting workshop at Omega. Uh, and I turned her down because I said, I really don't believe you can teach songwriting. I, I, I don't understand what it is. It's always a mystery to me. It always seems like the first time I'm writing a song. I, I never imagine I'll ever be able to do it again. And, and you know, uh, and, and, and then she told me what it paid. And I said, okay. And I went and, <laughs> and I ran into Jimmy Dale Gilmore outside the, the mess hall and, I confessed to him that I was there, you know, under false pretenses. And I said, I don't, I don't think you can teach people to write songs. He said, you can't, but you can create a safe space where people are feel, feel free to, to explore and, and to open up and to share. And I thought that's what I've been doing 
uh, in new beginnings. That's what, you know, so, so that's kind of where we're at. Um, the pandemic knocked us down a little bit, uh, kept us out of the prison for a couple of years, but we've been able to, uh, to, to, to rebuild and, uh, and the big uh, news for me, for years, I was trying to get one of my returning citizens, you know, one of the guys. Uh, so we have the New Beginnings group in the prison, and we have the Next Step group is, is our after-prison peer support work. And it was always my dream to take a, one of the guys who had come home and, and really, you know, just, uh, just knocked it out of the park, just, you know, um, overcome these incredible challenges and and begun to rebuild his life and and, and all that that means um, I always wanted to take one of those guys back into the prison but it was against the rules and I kept I kept knocking on the door and I, I finally arranged a, a meeting with the Commissioner of Corrections and the chief of the Bureau of Prisons by the po this point uh, you know they had heard of me and um, I was explaining I said you know you guys are telling me how great my program is but this is an AA meeting where the guy running the meeting has never taken a drink. Think of how much better this, this meeting could be, you know, if, if we got guys that have, you know, <laughs> robbed the liquor store, and, uh, which several of my guys have done. And um, they saw the wisdom of that. So, so then I started to try and overcome the, the, the reticence of, I didn't anticipate this, but if you've been in prison 13 years, the last place you ever want to go is into a prison again. And so I asked a couple of my guys and they said, hell no. <laughs> I understand what you, you know, that this might be advantageous, but I'm never going back in there. Um, but I asked this one fella uh, a couple months ago and he said, no, you know, and then six, seven weeks passed and, and he said, I've been thinking about it and yes, I, I'll do this. And we got him his security clearance and this was, this week was his third week uh, going, you know, through the Sally ports and those long hallways. And uh, I, I have never seen anything quite as powerful as these guys uh, uh, when they connect uh, and, 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 and truly open up to each other. The first night, his name is Ty, and the first night Ty was with us in the prison, he said, uh, he said, fellas, you all know what I'm talking about. You all know what it's like when they turn the lights out here at night. And you're in your rack, and you and you turn your face to the wall, and tears are rolling down your face. And everybody in that room just bowed their head and and began to nod. Now I've done this 18 years, and I've never heard a man admit to crying. You know, I mean, I, I I've had guy. I mean, not publicly. I've heard. I've had guys share this with me, but they've never had the strength to say this in 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 you know among themselves. But that and that that's. That's the whole different level that that we've been able to uh, to get to with uh, this next step in our, our program. So I, I'm I, I'm hoping I've been asked to take the take the uh, programs down south to to the other uh, uh, level five facilities in the state of Delaware, and I'm hoping that with the model of incorporating more returning citizens into the facilitator team that that uh, we can really do some do some good with it. So uh, hopefully I didn't talk too long. <laughs> John, that was fascinating. I mean, you hardly ever mentioned music. A couple of real quick things here. I know you went on a tour with uh, Willie Nelson, Arlo Guthrie, Chris Christopherson. You're very close with Chris Christopherson. How did that come about? 
I, I was asked to, I, I, well, I, I went, I was signed by Combine Music in Asheville, and that was Chris's publishing company. And I think I, I was such a big fan of his music that that's one of the first places I ever knocked on the door, because they had a real a t tremendous stable of, of singer-songwriters. Uh, 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 and, and so um, Billy Swan, who recorded my song, was one of Chris's uh, band members and one of his best friends. So he, he, he introduced us originally. But then a few years later, uh, I think it was Songwriters Monthly Magazine, because of my connection with Billy and Chris, they asked me to interview uh, Chris for a, a cover story of him they were doing. And so I, I, got to, I was actually in a Motel 6 in Nashville, and he was calling me from, from Malibu. I, 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 or, no, he was out in Hana. He was in Hawaii. So they had this, this phone call arranged, and I had my tape recorder all set up, and I had really... I had really worked on my interview, man. I'd never interviewed anybody. I had never asked a, a question in this kind of format before. And later I had to type up the, the interview. And my, my first question was, was 175 words and it was yes or no. <laughs> it was, it was, I, was, I was so exposed. I was so intent on showing him who I was and how much I appreciated his music that uh, I was really bad at it. But, but we, we we got uh, to be buddies in, at the, in, in, the, in the conversation, and I mentioned that I had a children's record that it was just coming out, and he asked if he could get it for his kids. So I sent it out to Hana, and a couple months later, uh, I, I got a, we got a big check, and, and the Christoffersons had, had bought a copy of it for everybody at the Hana Elementary School. So they, they, they bought all these albums and gave them out to all the kids at, at the school, and Chris's kids became fans of my music, and then I our friendship has continued since then and, and he and, and Arlo uh, have have really gone out of their way to kind of you know nudge me into the spotlight probably more than more than anybody else other than uh, some of the present company here and the one other thing I want to make sure you mentioned was Camp Dreamcatcher well Camp Dreamcatcher is very uh, close to my heart uh, uh, I'm on their board of advisors and I've been doing uh, fundraisers and c concerts for them. What for are they? Who 25 are they? years. Camp Dreamcatcher is a therapeutic summer camp for kids whose lives have been impacted by AIDS and HIV, which means a lot of the, probably the majority of the kids have AIDS or a HIV, but, but it could be that they've lost family members or their parents are dealing with it. Or, so the way we treat kids like that in our country is we make them keep this terrible, this shouldn't say terrible, but it's treated as a terrible secret that they must keep to themselves, that they can't feel that they can share uh, in, you know, in, in schools and stuff. And, and it's this place where they come in the summer and they get to be themselves. They just get to be kids. And, and, it, and it's so incredibly joyful. The first time I, I went, and this is like 25 years ago, I was, I was a little bit like uh, Denzel Washington in, 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 that, in that movie. You know, I was like, yeah, I'm all for, you know, but we don't really know everything there is to know. And I got little kids at home and I'm a little, you know, I was a little scared and a little skitsy. But, and I, I was doing my concert and there was a little girl in the front row and the counselor next to her was signing to me because she was, she couldn't hear very well. And her name was Danielle. And I, after the, she was just giving me so much joy, you know. And I went down to her after, 
after this, the show, and I knelt down, and she threw her arms around my neck. And uh, I asked the counselor what she's, what she's been saying, and the counselor said, she's been saying, I love you. And uh, so, like, they had me from, from that moment on. I, I, uh, I, I just uh, I do whatever I can for, for Patty Hillkirk and, and, and the folks at Camp Dreamcatcher. Boy, that got you. Yeah, it did. You can all see what a real human being we are talking to here. John, I've said it on stage many times. I love you. I love uh, who you are. I love what you do. And now I want to hear a song that I love. <laughs> Oh, yeah, now that you got me. <laughs> now that I got you where you're so emotional. My favorite kid's song of yours, by the way, is My Brother Ricky's for Sale. <laughs> well, you're not going to hear that today. <laughs> I'd like to sing you a new song because I'm going to, I think I'm going to release this as a single within the next uh, month. And uh, so this will be its, its debut. We are sailing. On a vessel across a sea of space and time, no thought given to the dangers or the world we leave behind. Though these waters are well charted, stubbornly we steer this boat. The places on the map on which the map makers all wrote. Here be dragons. Here be dragons. It is not old superstition to which these wise words refer. Or the tales of drunken sailors But to signs we've long observed Even those who plot our course now Say these monsters are no sham They have seen them with their own eyes But they just don't give a damn Eyes growing darker as the rigging starts to sing. Fetid wind like breath is warm and foul. Out over the waters moves a beast with giant wings. But no one yells, prepare to come about. There are men who worship money on the bridge of this old ship. As their only compass And with no care that the trip Causes death and misery To those in steerage down below They crash blindly through the waves Of desperation though they know Dragons 
icy be dragons Yes, the warnings are all true Rising ocean storms and wildfires Pestilence and famine too As they swelter and the poorest die Or flee to higher ground We must chart a brand new course And we must turn this boat around Here be dragons, here be dragons Dreadful dragons to avoid As the glaciers melt away And earth's green places are destroyed As calliopes of smokestacks Play their dirges, coastlines drown We must chart a brand new course We must turn this boat around We must first take back this ship Then we must turn this thing around Thank you. You wow. know more about John at johnflynn.net. That's his website. Wow. Back uh, thank you, Sonny. Thank you, John. I, I can't wait till that song is out. I, I'm going to be playing the hell out of it on the radio. That was, that was great, John. Thank you so thank much. You. Well, our, our next guest today is certainly no stranger. Um, he, I, I can't believe it. Uh, your, your last album was your 43rd album release since you started doing this and i think i still have the first one on vinyl that i'm playing uh, john mccutcheon is with us and uh john first of all congratulations on 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 leap which is your, your latest album uh and before we you know talk about some of the current stuff you're doing i want to go back in time now you're originally from uh, wisconsin and i understand you had a choice to make you could have either been uh continue practicing your piano or play baseball and i think you were very much into baseball you were somewhat of an all-star catcher i was uh i was the the starting catcher on my little league all-star team back when uh -huh. i was like 11. <laughs> <laughs> but look what's look what survived right right oh that, that, that's always tough i know it would be a kid myself do you, you go home and practice or do you go out and play baseball and obviously baseball but i'm glad you did find time to practice that piano uh, what what was it like growing up were you, were you in a musical family oh no i was in a, a a really religious family um my mom was a, a german american farm girl the youngest of 12 whose father was the youngest of 17. Um, that confluence of agricultural and agriculture and Catholicism that resulted in so many large families. Um, and, I, you know, it's, it's so interesting to, to be the, the caboose on this conversation because so many things that both John and Charlie have said have resonated with me. Um, I discovered uh, folk music like Charlie uh, in the 1960s. Um, I was, it was that year I was the all-star catcher. Um, my mom on a Tuesday afternoon made me sit down on our couch and watch television with her. And I was astonished that my mother was inviting me to watch television because it was exactly the opposite of her normal uh, stance on the medium. But I was the eldest of her nine kids um, and my, my father was a traveling salesman and so I was the closest thing to adult companionship I guess that she had. Uh, she had been a social worker before she became a mother, something that served her and us really well. Um, but it, I think it was that impetus that made her take her eldest son and sit down and, and watch the March on Washington. 
It was the first thing in our nation's history that was broadcast live on all three channels. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a testament to the fact that we are elders that none of us were astonished when I said all three channels. <laughs> um, and it was, unlike Charlie, I was not uh, firewalled from the civil rights movement. It was on TV every night. Um, it was it was like a foreign country in North Central Wisconsin, um, but it ticked all the boxes of my upbringing. It was a righteous cause. Um, it was led by clergy, who used biblical language, and the songs were all repurposed hymns. I mean, there was no question that this was for me. And then on that Tuesday afternoon. Um, Something happened that modern rallies and, and demonstrations should well take note of is that there was as much music or more than there were speeches. And I guess I heard the I Have a Dream speech. It did not register to me. I was just so overwhelmed by Marian Anderson and, oh my God, Mahalia Jackson. To hear Melly Jackson as a little white kid from northern Wisconsin was a religious experience. And then out came what my mother told me were folk singers. I'd never heard of folk music. I didn't know what folk singers were. But there was Odetta and Peter Paul Mary and uh, Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and Len Chandler. And they were singing all these songs, most of which were newly composed songs that sounded old and there was that sense of um, urgency and um, depth. I mean the thing that the thing about the civil rights movement is because of that religious bent, that spiritual bent, it had it had a kind of heft that was really powerful to me. And uh, my best friend happened to be watching this same thing at his house and I rode my bike over to his house and I said, did you see this? What was that stuff? And we began a, an unrelenting campaign to try to get guitars. Mm. And it took us three years <laughs> and we both eventually got guitars and started playing music together. I went down to the library and the only book in our public library that had guitar chords in it was Woody Guthrie folk songs. <laughs> And I had no idea who Woody Guthrie was because they don't tell you when they teach you the songs in school who the composers are. They still don't. And John will attest to that, I'm sure. Um, but it, so the first 30 songs I learned were Woody Guthrie songs. Who knew? And, and it was that kind of eclectic, very ecumenical approach to songwriting that really spoke to me. He, he wrote kid songs and love songs and topical songs and historical songs. And they had that narrative, that story that Charlie was talking about. And they had that sense that John was talking about, uh, about exposing the hidden, taking those things out into, into the public view and the public conscious naming things. Um, and it's what was powerful to me about Phil's writing as well. Mm -hmm. You can't write about that. You can't say that. Um, but of course you can, and of course you did.
it's funny what you're saying about schools. And I remember being a, a student of uh, kindergarten, first grade. We were singing Put Your Finger in the Air. I, I found out later in, in, in life that it was Woody Guthrie that wrote that. Um, nothing political, but, you know, they, they, they were and we were in an age where they were introducing these kinds of songs. And, and you got introduced to these songs, as you said, through you know, the civil rights movement, but also when you were in your 20s, a little bit older. I understand you, you took a trip to um, eastern Kentucky and Appalachia where you really got immersed in the music, the, the traditional music, uh, folk song, which is a little different from what the folk revival was offering at that time. Well, I think people forget that Pete introduced an entire repertoire of American folk songs from the Erie Canal to put your finger in the air. Right. I mean, Pete was the vehicle for people learning this land is your land. Woody hardly ever sang it. Hell, he didn't even record it for nine years after he wrote it. Um, so I started playing the banjo when I was a college student in Minnesota, which was a real fool's errand. Uh, and I just wanted to be around people for whom that was a part of musical conversation. So I convinced my college, which kept me on a very long leash, that I was going to go do an independent study. Uh, and that was 50 years ago. <laughs> and I'm still <laughs> on that independent study. It's a big subject. Sure. Um, so that's how I moved south about 50, 51 years ago and immediately got involved in stuff that was going on down here. There's, there's far, far more interesting community-based political work going on in the South than people ever imagine. Um, and uh, I, Thanksgiving Day, 1973, I was a 21-year-old kid without a Thanksgiving Day invitation and went up to the Brookside Mine in Harlem County to sing on the picket line. And that's where I met Cy Khan. He was an organizer for the UMW. Um, and we've been best pals ever since. And that really led me down the wayward path of writing songs. Well, we're glad you did because you've written some some memorable pieces. Um, obviously, we're, we're doing this as an audio podcast, but I could see you visually and I'm looking at the wall behind you and I see dulcimers, I see a mandolin, guitars. And I know from seeing you in concert, you bring all these instruments out. Um, oh, this is just wallpaper. That's, That's wallpaper. Oh, okay, <laughs> those aren't real instruments, but I got you. Well, I, I can't I've, afford that stuff. <laughs> you're like a one-man folk festival when you when you perform, and uh, it, it's interesting that you you do have such an eclectic mix to your music, uh, and you're such a great storyteller as well. That had to evolve uh, when you started out. Did, were you planning to become a performer, and how did you evolve into? the John McCutcheon that we all know and see on stage now? Uh, well, I had to lose my hair first. <laughs> Something that, that John Flynn will never know, apparently. <laughs> right. Um, he's, it's, it's, you know, Charlie and I look at him and say, well, that's just not fair. Talk about income inequity. <laughs> um, uh, when I first, I mean, I fell in love with everything about the South when I moved down here, uh, the people, the, the, the music, the land, all the stuff that was, seemed to be bubbling up in every little community, and uh, the food, uh, everything about it. And so I was collecting a lot of music and largely playing stuff I had um, 
learned firsthand from people. And when I started performing outside of the region, I remember the first time I ever played in New York City, I thought, this is music from the moon as far as these people are concerned. Plus, it was against the backdrop of the Beverly Hillbillies and Deliverance and Snuffy Smith and all the kind of pejorative caricatures that still persist. Um, uh, and so, th because I loved this music and the, the people that taught it to me, I decided to try to create an environment uh, with a story um, that was not the pedantic, well, I collected this or I sing this or I wrote this because, but rather that gave it context um, so that people might love it as much as I did. And when I would go back to these places, I would, I would think, well, I've already told the story, so I'm just going to get in there and sing the songs. And people would come up to me afterwards and say, what happened to the story? We liked that as much as the music. And I, I remember thinking, ah, well, maybe I'm onto something here. Um, so um, that's kind of how that developed. And did I start off to do this? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, I just did my taxes one year. And I realized that everything that I made any money on was related to music. I was giving lessons. I was teaching, in a, you know, some stuff in a little school in Knoxville. I was doing the odd concert, and they were certainly odd back then. Um, and, and little things here and there. And I thought, oh, I guess I'm a professional musician. So the first thing I did is I went out and I joined the union. Then I really felt like a professional musician. Well, joining the union, you are an integral part of Local 1000, the uh, Musicians Union. Could you explain how that came to be and, and how you got involved with it? Well, the folklore that I have spread for years is that it's Charlie's fault, actually. Um, <laughs> Charlie, you keep muted so you can't deny it. Because um, it's, it's, it's great. It's a great story. Uh, Charlie and I and many other people who have been involved in the in going out and playing for the mine workers and the meat packers and the flight attendants and, uh, you know, paper mill workers and different coal miners. And we all attended this thing called the Great Labor Arts Exchange um, in suburban Washington, D.C. And it's in June, so the weather is beautiful. And we were sitting outside having lunch one day, kind of trading war stories. And my recollection is that Charlie, who is usually the first to sort of summarize all the discussion that's happened previously in some kind of prescient question was said, as I recall, wouldn't it be great if we all felt about our union the way that these people who are willing to risk their livelihoods and in some cases their lives uh, because they believe so much in their union and that question just hung there in the air and it was on that day that we, a group of us decided to try to organize the people that we knew who did this kind of work, who didn't really fit into the geographic local structure. I mean, the American Federation of Musicians is set up like the auto workers, as though we all go to a specific workplace every day. And some people, like symphonic players, do do that. But we really f believed and continue to believe that there are thousands of musicians out there who are not being served. And luckily, we happened to find a little chink in the armor of the union, of the international, that said, well, talk to us. And eventually, they granted us a, um, a charter, and we are the only non-geographic 
union, uh, local in the history of the American Federation of Musicians. And I was told at a convention a number of years ago that we're the largest local that does not have a big collective bargaining agreement, i.e., uh, you know, Broadway pit bands, symphonies, amusement parks, uh, traveling shows, whatever. All, it's just all individuals and small ensembles, and uh, lots of people have come to believe in it and depend on it. And I was the president for about 15 years, and like Charlie, um, you know, just decided, you know, it's in good hands and uh, wanting to avoid founder's disease, um, decided that I really needed to step back and I'm a proud rank and filer. I'm on the board of the Atlanta local just because I apparently can't help myself. <laughs> um, well, you're, you're, you're helping others too, not just yourself. Uh, just give us a quick elevator speech to the musicians who may be listening, the songwriters who are not part of Local 1000 here in 2023 why should they join well we're you know if i was a dentist or a just out of dental school out of law school out of medical school the first thing that you do is you join the american medical association the american bar association we're, we're the only organization out there period whose only job is to look after the interests of and advocate for the rights of musicians and it's it's not just members of our local. We're, we're involved in stuff that, in, that concerns people who aren't and never will be union musicians. So if you're looking for a way to approach this, this job as something you can do for the rest of your life and then have a dignified and decent retirement, and you want to think of this trade as being cooperative rather than solely competitive, which is the, which is the model that's shoved down our throats. Um, come join your brothers and sisters. And um, there's lots of pocketbook issues, but when it comes right down to it, what I learned working with the mine workers and the meat packers and the flight attendants and the uh, coal miners is that when, when the going gets tough, what matters most is dignity and respect, mm -hmm. far more than the paycheck. And that spoke to me. And like I've heard Charlie say, of all the different social justice movements that I've been involved working with, the people that I know, I absolutely know, will be in my corner if the, if the tough going gets tough, are people who are involved in the labor movement. Absolutely true. And, and, uh, and in this folk community that we have, I, I think Local 1000 has done a world of good and uh, continues to, to bring us all together and to, and to keep this music alive. Well, speaking of music, we're, before we uh, go to our little group discussion, I, I want to get a song from you. And obviously, you've written so many wonderful songs over the years. I mean, Christmas in the <laughs> Trenches has become uh, a classic, but you've, you've written so much more. And I, I, I suspect you have a new one. I know you've been doing some work with Tom Paxton, and uh, you have an album coming out, I believe, later this year with Tom. Uh, yeah, we just we were in the studio all last week uh -huh. working on it. What a treat! I mean, Tom's pushing eighty six, and he is living proof that this is amazing creative work that you can do your whole life. Absolutely. Well, you you're doing great. So, how, how about sharing a song? What do you have for us today? Uh Um, I want to do one that is actually about five or six years old. 
because it speaks to that thing that Charlie was talking about, um, which is how do you create, especially something that's absolutely contemporary, how do you create something that is able to talk about it in an interesting way? Because I, I mean, I've always felt that as a, as a political performer, you know, if I was out in the audience w watching myself, I would say, you know, why should I care what you think? Why, why, you know, why should I care what you think? It's just your opinion. Give me a new idea. You know, you, you don't have the answer. You just have the microphone. Respect that. Um, so I, the, the place I lived longer than any other place in my life, I spent 20 years living in Charlottesville, Virginia. And immediately after the, the uh, Unite the Right rally in August of 2017, um, I knew I was going to have to write something. It was, I wasn't living there at the time, but it's the hometown of my children. I have lots of friends there, and it's a place I dearly love. And I, the first thing I think about when I'm writing is, what's the story, and who's the voice? And I, the first thing that came into my mind was my father, who was an old World War II veteran, um, who died appropriately on, on Pearl Harbor Day in 2014. And on that day um, of the right, Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, it was the first time that it ever occurred to me that I was glad he was gone, so that he hadn't lived to see that. Um, and then the song just came. He sat there on his front porch beneath the clear blue sky. In his 97th year, as a crowd came roaring by, shouts the chants, the flags, the rants, the flag he knew too well. Slowly shook his head and said, God damn them all to hell. As I was on the beach that morning when half my company died. The history books now say it was the day that turned the tide. Back home our families all pitched in save tires and tinfoil too. We realized that evil had a name that we all knew. Woody Guthrie had this guitar with the best sign I have seen. This machine kills fascists. We must be the machine. Now, 70 years later, here they are again. Some of them weren't even born, but I was present when we liberated Birkenau. I still see every face. Well, I didn't fight the Nazis to allow them in this place. Woody Guthrie had this guitar with the best sign I have seen. This machine kills fascists. We must be the machine. No, I don't believe that wars start with a bullet or the bomb. It begins in homes and hearts 
with the innocent and young. No one is born to hatred, they must be fed the lie. We're left with the carnage and these bastards marching by. I no longer wield the weapons that I did in my youth. What I'm left to offer now is memory and truth. And no one can sit idly after what we've seen today. Either stand up and be counted or get the hell out of the way. Woody Guthrie had this guitar with the best sign I have seen. This machine kills fascists. We must be the machine. Yes, Woody Guthrie had this guitar with the best sign I have seen. This machine kills fascists. We must be the machine. Oh, thank you, John. Oh, that was great. Well, that was just uh, powerful. So all, all of your songs today, everybody has been inspiring us and uh, giving us hope um now we're now's the time we we start our little group discussion and and, and kind of on that note uh, you know all of you have uh, dedicated your lives your music to working for social justice working to make people aware of of issues but I know, obviously, we look around us and the, read the news and see what's going on. There's still a lot more to be done. Does it get frustrating? Do you feel sometimes you're just preaching to the choir who already knows? And do you ever get angry that uh, things haven't changed? Uh, what, what are your feelings about creating this kind of music in, in 2023? Who would like to go first? Charlie, we haven't heard from you in a while. Well, I think things have changed. I mean, look what John Flynn's doing. Um, that's all new. That's brand new. New beginnings. Um, and I think the most frustrating thing is if you look from the top down, but as John McCutcheon said, if you look from the bottom up, you're going to find so many community-based um, movements for change and people working to uh, outlast <laughs> the uh, the people at the top. Um, I don't know. I was just reading something today about how um, vitiating it is to get stuck in uh, rage. And surely there's enough reason to be enraged, but um, uh, it's not a good place for me to write from. Um, and, uh, it's not a good way for me to live my life. Um, I, th I think, uh, I think I, I should stop talking soon, but I, I have to acknowledge that a lot of the stuff that I've been working on most of my life got seriously derailed by the pandemic. Uh, the School of the Americas demonstration, um, the, um, uh, 
the uh, Journey of Hope um, against the death penalty, uh, the um, anti-nuclear movement, um, all kind of stalled by this inability to gather together. And uh, um, I guess one good reason for me to stop talking is to hear from you, John. And John, uh, what do you see going on now that would um, be an antidote to rage and despair? Well, I'll go first, John. Um, Ron talks about singing to the choir. Um, I, number one, that needs to happen. It's, it's like a USO show. No one, no one says, what are you doing that for? And the people who are in the front lines absolutely need songs to unite them and give them courage and let them know that they're not alone. I mean, Paxton and I wrote this song, Ukrainian Now, and I made a little video of it. And we started and put it on Facebook. And I started getting messages from frontline Ukrainian fighters saying, wow, we, we're just out here doing this. We don't know if the world even knows we exist. So there's, there's a lot of that, you know, you, you send these songs out, you, do, you don't really have any idea what they're gonna do. That's the birthing process. Um, but also, I heard Steve Earle at Folk Alliance one year say, where's all the political music? Oh my God, there's way more political music going on right now. And a lot of really hopeful, interesting stuff made by people young and old, it doesn't have the, the impetus of a television show or stuff appearing in front page news as it did back in the late 1950s and early 1960s when it was, you know, we had our moment of capitalism. And, and like everything else, they chewed us up and spit us out and they were on to the next thing. But there is more stuff going on out there than um, at Utah Phillips's memorial service. They handed out a card. You know, how you go to a funeral and they hand you a card with a picture of somebody on it and the prayer of St. Francis or something on the back. And it had no picture of Utah, but it said there are too many people doing too many good things in this world to allow myself the luxury of despair. And it's a powerful and potent way to go about, I mean, I'm kind of a naturally optimistic person anyway. Um, and as Charlie said, if you, if you look at the, read the news and look at, at what's going on out in the world, everything is, everything is pointed to the top of the political pyramid where you have no a access or influence and you just, it, you're perpetually pissed off and feel powerless. And that's by design. And so what we're doing, and because I play for all kinds of audiences, my, my audiences are not essentially political audiences. Um, you know, singing a good kid's song, that's political work. You know, playing a good fiddle tune. We need that in the world we're trying to build. Um, so uh, it's all political work in, in some respect, and there's a lot of really good stuff going on out there. John Flynn? Uh, I don't know that I can top anything that's been said. I think one of the things I'm going to take away from 
what I've heard today is something that Charlie said, the, the idea of, of what would my brother do, you know, who, who I don't agree with politically, but I know him to be a good person. I know him to be a good human being. And I think the answer is somewhere in there because we're never going to change each other by making each other ashamed, uh, by by uh, deriding each other by by simply responding with even righteous anger it was pointed out to me recently that the old testament prophets always started out with righteous anger but they always moved towards love uh they always moved towards mercy and reconciliation uh and uh not too long ago greg boyle is a friend of mine who runs homeboy industries out in los angeles and he's, uh, he's been very kind in, in that whenever I have a crisis and email him in the middle of the night, he usually gets up real early and, he, and he, he'll, he'll bounce an email back to me quick. And one of my guys had been out of prison for several years, and I, I actually helped him start a, a company which was which on the verge of really taking off. He, he couldn't get uh, a job because of his status, the status of his offense. But I helped him get in uh, somewhere as an independent contractor. And that, that circumvented the problem. And then he started hiring other returning citizens. And, and then, then he started to, something happened. Then he started to make some really sketchy decisions. And I could see that the, the path might take him back to a, a six by eight room for many years. And uh, I, I wrote to Greg and I said, I can't get through to this guy. I don't know what to do. And Greg wrote back to me. He said, your, your job is not to fix anybody or to save anybody. Your job is to be the, 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 the tender glance of creation uh, and look, look deeply and see the, the beauty and the good in every person that's in front of you. Find it. And, and he said, if you do that, that'll fix and save you, Flynn. And, 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 and so that's where, I, that's where I try to stay. You know, I, I can't take on any, any of the other responsibility and, and I haven't been called to, you know, so <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it to, uh, to King and McCutcheon. <laughs> I, 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 Ron, I feel like after especially hearing Charlie and John, I want to add one more perspective to your question. A lot of this, and, and also give your, the listeners of this some kind of handle, because you don't have to have albums out. You don't have to be a professional full-time musician to be a part of what is going on out there. I mean, what John is doing, for instance, in the prisons is completely invisible to the public eye. The people who come to his concerts, they don't have to know about that to appreciate his music. I remember being on a panel with Charlie at Folk Alliance one time when he said the most satisfying stuff that he'd been doing, and I hope I'm not embarrassing you by saying this, Charlie, is that he was going to a local hospice and just singing at bedsides. And I thought, isn't that what we practice all these years to be able to do, to be able to sit at a crib side, at a bedside, and sing something that's there's lots of ways to be helpful and when it comes right down to it that's better than a grammy or you know even the phil oaks award sunny is just to feel that you're out there and you don't you don't have to be great you don't even have to be as bad as us you can just go out there and and do what you can do in your community and that's that's political work and it doesn't have to be have a light shown on it. And in fact, you're supposed to pray in private. I, th I think someone said that once. <laughs> Hidden room. 
Yeah, I, I was uh, recently heard something from uh, Reggie Garrett. I don't know if you all know him. He's a singer-songwriter from uh, Seattle, Washington. And he just put out a beautiful album uh, about the, the black experience in America at this time. And he's been around for years. But he said something, you know, his songs are very... I don't want to use the word quiet, but they, they're very subtle. And he was, responded saying, well, when you start out with an angry song, and if you have a conversation with somebody and you're angry, right away they put up a front and they get back. The idea, and I think it's ex very explicit in all of your songs here, is that you're looking to start discussions. And I think that's what your music has been, why it's been so meaningful and that it's, and it's been so helpful to so many of us. So I thank you for, for creating this and giving us a forum to, to play your songs. On a totally different note, I would like each of you to think about a memorable moment in your career, be it humorous, be it horrible, be it funny as hell, be it uh, important. Think about what what moments stand out in your life. Like for me, it's John. You mentioned the march on Washington. I was on that march, and that to this day is still one of my most memorable moments. So, and I and that would be the one that I would come up with. What about you guys? Uh, I was, I used to play in Alaska quite regularly, and the people up there were really generous of sharing their lives and. Uh, you know, I, I play, the Fishermen's Union of Prince William Sound, the Cordova District Fishermen United, used to bring me up to Cordova. And I'd, they'd, I'd sleep on their boats, and they'd take me out fishing the next day. And I got to know a lot about small-town commercial gill netting, which is sort of the, the most accessible, and it's sort of like the working class of salmon fishing. And... So it I, prompted a lot of songs, as, as you do. You guys know. You go someplace, you meet somebody extraordinary, and you say, oh, golly, that really moved me. I'm going to write. So I'm singing this song, and there's, you know, there's nothing going on in Cordova. <laughs> so everybody comes out. And I, we're in the gymnasium of the local high school, and I'm singing. I'm singing this song that I wrote about small commercial fishing. In, in and out of Cordova, and I mentioned landmarks and so on, and this little kid in the front row turns to her mother and in a stage whisper says, Mom, he's singing about us. And I thought, that's it. I don't need, I don't need any applause. I don't need any award. I wrote something for somebody. They got it. My life is complete. I can die a happy man. Charlie? Yeah, um, well, we can check that box, I think, uh, all three of us, to have someone uh, hear a song that we wrote and know that we wrote it for them, and know that we wrote it about them. Um, what I was thinking was the experiences that have been um, most important to me is when I became a singer as part of a community. So I think about um, being in the um, armories in Seabrook, New Hampshire after the occupation in 1977. And um, um, we used to get together 
uh, I, I managed to get, get a guitar into the armory. I, I mean, I carried it with me through the whole arrest process and everything, which was kind of tumultuous. And um, we would gather uh, after lunch, those of us who weren't fasting, and we would get in a circle and uh, I would sing, Seek and You Shall Find, which Pete Seeger, I think, set to music. Um, and we'd all, we would all sing it. I just have the guitar. And then we'd stop after each verse. And Pete used to tell the story between singing that, that chorus. Um, we'd stop and people would share news from home. And um, a lot of it was the kind of impact that having um, 1,500 people sitting in armories in New Hampshire and refusing to bail themselves out because they wanted to stop the construction of the Seabrook nuclear power plant. Um, going down to the School of the Americas uh, demonstrations in Columbus, Georgia, where we had a, a musician's collective and for several days we planned and performed music and um, uh, like that march in Washington, there was never more talks than there was singing. Uh, sidebar, I went to the 50th anniversary of the march on Washington and there was very little singing and that which was sung is not worth being mentioned. All right, I'll mention it. I left my heart in San Francisco. That was the only song that was sung. Um, um, so uh, being in that community and having a collective responsibility to generate what was more than half of three days of political uh, action and and uh, and communication, and then the thing that brought me together with John Flynn, uh, being part of the uh, um, the journey of hope from violence to healing, to end the death penalty, um, uh, and John and John and I shared the stage on that. John, when we were down in Georgia, came and joined us for that the journey of hope, and so for fourteen days. Um, I get to get up every morning and come up with a song. Karen and I get up in the morning, come up with a song that would sort of bring us together. And these people were um, triggering some of the most horrific events in their lives. They're going out and they're talking about uh, the death of a loved one, the death of a child, um, and how they found that even in that horrific circumstance, they could not support the death penalty. So they were just ripping their hearts out day after day. And so we had to have something that would inspirit them. And when we got home, we had to have something that would help to heal that, you know, and maybe that was sitting up late and singing Sam Cooke songs, you know, or maybe it was singing a song we could all sing together and then going to the, to the events where people would speak and getting up between speakers and offering a song that kind of bridge the two speakers or maybe helped us take a deep breath after someone had told a story you couldn't believe. And so being in community and singing, John, you said uh, uh, the hospice singing was being helpful. And uh, uh, I think the best, the best experiences I've had was when I felt like I was an integral part of, of a movement. John Flynn. Uh, yeah. Um, Greg Boyle, uh, says that uh, if love is the answer, then community is the the context, and 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 tenderness is the delivery system. You know, and and we all have this, we all have this love here. But what is it unless we go stand in a place where we can share it? And um, 
I, I don't know why this story came to mind, but it, it, it has to do with the, the kind of mutuality that we're, we're all talking about. And, and there was a riot at the prison here in Smyrna uh, five or six years ago, and a, a guard was killed. And a lot of the guys involved in the riot uh, were sent to uh, the Howard R. Young uh, a correctional institution uh, not too far from where I live in northern Delaware. And they, and they were put in administrative segregation, which meant they were just walled off. There were no, to keep them apart from the general population and a lot of the other correctional officers. Because they, they were, uh, you know, there was, it was, there was a lot going on. And uh, they were trying to keep these guys safe uh, until trials. And, and the prison asked me if I would start, take new beginnings. There weren't, it, there was no other programming, there was no other entertainment, there was no other visits, there was nothing these guys had every week but a visit from me and one of my volunteers. We would go up and it was the only time I ever uh, had pr uh, prisoners, offenders brought in in shackles uh, to, to our group, um, which I insisted that they be removed. So anyway, I'd worked with them for about nine months gotten to know these guys very well and, and established a sense of a, a rapport and trust. And, and uh, they, the, the decision was that they were going to be start to move, move to other prisons uh, throughout the, the country. And I asked the warden if I could do a concert uh, for them. I just, not a big deal, but just take my guitar in uh, one day and, and, and sing them some songs. And, uh, and, and I was surprised when I was told that I could. So I, so I showed up with my guitar and, and the guys came in. And I, and I put my case on the floor and I, I opened up the guitar case and this, this old timer, uh, long gray hair and, and a beard. And, and, uh, he'd always told me he was a rock and roller. You know, I, I played the guitar. I had a band, man. And, and uh, he saw my guitar and he just went, Oh, I just heard this, <laughs> oh. you know, and my guitars, uh, my old Martin D 28 has been signed by Willie and Chris and Arlo and, Ramblin' Jack and, you know, folks that I've worked with over the years, and and, uh, and he's asking me about it, and it's got a hole worn in it, like like Willie's, you know, not quite as big. And uh, so I took it out of the case, and I handed it to him. And he was like, oh, my God, I can touch it? I said, man, it's not a relic, you know, yeah, yeah. I wasn't really sure he could touch it. I, I looked around, I thought somebody was going to be coming coming through the door any minute, but... So he played a D chord, like it just rang out in this room. And I, and I sang, I hear the train a coming. <laughs> and he went, oh yeah. And, and so he played, you know, false in prison blues and I sang it and I got out my harp and the place, especially when we got to, I, I, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. The place just exploded, <laughs> you know? And, and, and when we, we got done, he handed the guitar back to me and he was just about hyperventilating, you know? And the other guys are slapping him on the back said, shit, man, I didn't think you could really play. I thought that was all bullshit, man. You can play, you know? And, and one of the other guys says, he's high now. I'd never seen him high before, but he's high now, you know? <laughs> and and, and, and he, he, I couldn't even hear him, but I saw his voice say, I, I saw his lips say, thank you. Thank you, you know? And I did my concert and, 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 and I was marvelous, you know, of course, but, <laughs> <laughs> but nothing approached that you know that community that mutuality it wasn't me there sharing something with him it was us sharing something together and when we get to that place man it just goes it just goes off the scale you know that was a great great story you know I, I would love to do this all day long but we really need to watch time 
So I guess I hate to do this, but unless you have something you want to say to each other or about each other, it's maybe time for some imparting of wisdom. I love you, John. Both of you. <laughs> uh, let's see. Charlie, would you like to share your wisdom with us now? That was it. Um, <laughs> love is all there is. You know, it's the best. Back horse. Um, well, I don't think it was ever an option for me to um, make a lot of money making music. Um, that wasn't in the cards for me. Uh, and that doesn't have anything to do with the kind of songs that I write or sing. It just has to do with <clears throat> where I stand on the musical scale. Um, and um, I guess it's what you were saying, John. Um, you know, no matter at what level of professionalism you are at, do it and believe in it. And, uh, and you can make a difference. And uh, it was good to be reminded of that today. So... That, that'll do. John McCutcheon? I remember when Pete died. Um, it struck me particularly hard, and my wife said, well, you're one of the elders now. Maybe that is one of the things that's affecting that. And I said, well, Pete was a friend, and he was a mentor, and he was my, this is the first day in my life that Pete Seeger has not been in it. Let me get used to that. And as I look around now as an, as an elder, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an honorific that I don't know that I deserve, but I'm certainly honored when somebody ref, refers to me as such. I'm reminded of one of my favorite books, which is Letters to a Young Poet by Rainier Maria Rilke. And I've often thought that, I, that maybe a bunch of us should write letters to a young folk singer. Um, just saying nuts and bolts stuff, but also the thing that my mother said to me from the very beginning of me, the first time I ever stood up in mass and played my guitar afterwards, she said, that was really lovely, Johnny, but remember, it's not about you. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really a great guiding force in my life because it's really easy to forget that. You know, there's not many jobs in this world where you are affirmed every five minutes. Mm -hmm. In fact, I can't think of any other job in the world uh, where you get so much affirmation for doing the simplest stuff, really. Um, and keeping in touch with those people who have to work really hard for no ovations is what has kept me honest all these years. Um, and I just have to say that I'm really, maybe one of my proudest things is that I'm in a, in a world that has, you know, John Flynn and Charlie King and Ron Alesco and Sonny Oaks and so many people who have demonstrated such intelligence and courage and stubbornness, um, and just open-hearted love that, you know, God, I'm glad my mom made me sit down. <laughs> that August afternoon in 1963, I could, I could be an even bigger asshole than I am right now if not for that. <laughs> Listen, so my wisdom, listen to your mom.
<laughs> when you least expect it. <laughs> Good advice. John Flynn? Uh, I, I, I could second that for sure. Um, matter of fact, Brother David gave me the same advice when he got me into the prison the first time. This is not about you. Um, I'm, just, I'm just thinking how rich my life has been because I made the choice to follow my heart into music, and, and I, 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 I can't really uh, prove that uh, by my bank account some months. Uh, but the people that I have gotten to know, the heroes that I've, I've gotten to be friends with, uh, I, I could never have imagined it. And uh, I, I'm, I'm just so grateful. I was listening to a, actually a bunch of these podcasts earlier when I was out running. I wanted, I thought, well, I got to listen to some other wisdom so I can think of something wise or at least wise ass like to say, <laughs> to say. And, uh, and I was listening to the Sonny and Ron and, and, and you, you guys are talking to elders in it. And it, it just kept coming back like 1972 and this folk festival where, where Joni and Judy and, and Jackson and I mean, P, you know, and it was like, the subtext was that the party was really over by the time that I showed up, you know, like, it, uh, but then I thought I have been at the greatest after party that ever existed. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, I'm, I'm just so grateful. Oh, we're, we're grateful for all the, all of you that, uh, for the work you do, for the inspiration you give, for the love you've been sharing and, uh, many, many more years of, of great things coming from all three of you. Well, Sonny, uh, I think uh, another great Wisdom of the Elders in the books. Thanks to you for creating this series. And uh, thanks to the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance and Folk Music Notebook for helping us keep this going and doing these brand new ones and sharing them as podcasts. And, and Sonny, again, thanks to you for, for creating this and uh, giving us the inspiration to, to, to bring this to everybody. Well, it was so beautiful to see three of my favorite people in a, in a conference like this together and and it just shows why they all earned the phil oaks award <laughs> and many thanks for all of the things you've been doing you're just very special people and i love all of you and ron you're the greatest co-host you were so easy to work with thank you Oh, thank my pleasure. Thank you for, for thank you for having me. This is such an honor. And you know, I, I guess John, you and I were both born in 1957, so I guess that makes me an elder now too. I don't know. <laughs> I have to get a change. Well, I, I was born in 1937. Got you all. Be, I'm with Tom Paxton. We're we're in the same year together. Well, you're you, you act younger than all of us, so <laughs> many many more years to come, Fusati. Well, I guess we'll do this again next month, and we'll. Uh, Save it for a surprise for everybody who our guests will be. I think we're going to go back to the archives. So uh, I'm looking forward to doing this again with you, Sonny. Okay. Get to go okay. to the archives now, John. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's time to, to head off, to shuffle off this, this <laughs> digital coil. <laughs> Love you guys. Love you too. Thanks for everybody for listening. We'll see you again next month. <laughs>